0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, as you prepare your heart to receive God's Word, we pray that His Spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. Well, good morning, uh, Hope Church Toronto West. Uh, Our sermon today is entitled, The Favor of the Lord. The favor of the Lord. Uh, Over and over in the Bible, this very phrase, the favor of the Lord, uh, is used. It refers to God's approval, God's commendation, uh, God's esteem, his validation, his green light, his stamp of approval, his thumbs up. And all of that is bundled up in this tiny little phrase, the favor of the Lord. And in some ways, the favor of the Lord was the defining mark, the defining mark of every man and woman used by God in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 6 the entire world was wicked, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Exodus 33 uh, Moses begs to see God's glory. And he says, now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. He says, if I found favor, I want to see you so that I find more favor. Central, the favor of the Lord. Luke 1, Mary, when she was told that she would have a child, she was reassured, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Luke 2, finally, Jesus himself, the repeated descriptor of his entire childhood is, and the favor of God was upon him. The favor of the Lord. The favor of the Lord was everything. Uh, but the favor of the Lord doesn't tend to be very fashionable today. Uh, in fact, if you use the word favor, uh, for example, as approval and esteem, that the very use of that word in that way is uncommon today. If I were to ask you to use the word favor in a sentence, you'd probably say, Hey, can you do me a favor? Or I favor option one over option two, but you probably wouldn't say I'm really seeking the, my spouse's favor today. Uh, It's an old fashioned word It's a traditional word, but doesn't this word really represent so much? Doesn't it represent all that we're looking for? In a single little word for someone to approve, to support, to commend, to esteem, to validate us, so we know we're okay, so we know we're all right, doesn't that describe everything that we crave? Favor. Favor. And essentially our world tells us that you can find favor and it gives us all these options as to where to look, where to find favor. Maybe it's in a community that's completely supportive of you no matter what choices you make. Maybe you find favor simply in the mirror just by loving yourself the way you are. But here's the question. Can true favor, can true satisfaction be found in those places, in favor of others, in favor of self? What if... What if the most important thing, what if the most central thing in the Bible is this, this central idea that the main thing that we need is the favor of the Lord, the favor of the Lord. How many of us got up, got up this morning and thought with crystal clarity, out of everything I need today, what I need more than anything else in my life is this, God's favor. Today and tomorrow and all the days to come, favor. Favor of the Lord. It's an unfashionable thing, even for us to pray for. But our text today is all, is the central truth that makes our whole text today hold onto is just this idea of the favor of God. And we're going to learn something profound and beautiful about it. So today we're going to look at Psalm 30. And I invite you to turn there now, Psalm chapter 30. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, simply raise up your hands and one of our ushers will be glad to get one to you. If you don't own it, uh, own a Bible that's yours to keep. We just ask that you read it. As we turning to Psalm 30, I just want to give you some background. Uh, psalm 30 was written by King David. Uh, take a look at the title of the psalm. It says, A Psalm of David, A Song at the Dedication of the Temple. Uh, this is one of a collection of 14 different psalms. 14 different psalms that relate the psalm directly to a historical event in David's life. So it's special. But what's curious in this title is that we know that David's already died by the time Solomon built and dedicated the temple But it's thought that David wrote this psalm in anticipation for when that day would come, the temple dedication that he would ultimately not see. So the temple dedication psalm. But Psalm 30 is not just that. It's also a psalm of thanksgiving. See, in it, David is expressing thanks to God for some form of deliverance. And curiously, most commentators uh, concur that David specifically thanks God for healing in this text healing from great sickness. As you read the text, you'll see he's really close to death. He's about to die. And it's not recorded elsewhere in the Bible, but David the psalmist was gravely ill, near the depths and the grave, and God snatches his life from death. He's been physically healed. And it's in this context of delivery, of deliverance and healing, that we get to see four things about God in our text. Four things about God in our text, God's rescue, God's wake-up call, God's holy name, and God's praise. God's rescue, God's wake-up call, God's holy name, and God's praise. So let's start with, let's take each of these in turn. Here's our first point. We see God's rescue from down to up. God's rescue from down to up. Let's start reading our text now, and let's just read the first five verses. Psalm 30 verse 1 says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you've healed me. O Lord, you've brought brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Uh, This psalm starts with a declaration, I will extol you. We actually sang that declaration, I exalt you. And you can hear the reverence in in his voice. Oh Lord, I will do this. I declare, I will extol you. Other translations say, I will exalt you. It literally means it's a picture to lift up God. It means to lift and raise above your head. See, he is lifting his God in worship. Oh God, I will lift you high is what he's saying. Oh God, I will raise you up. And the rest of verse one to three tells us the reason, the reason why David is extolling, exalting, and lifting his God up. Look at the second part of verse one. Uh, It starts with four. Uh, This is the reason. for God, you have drawn me up. And in, in essence, he says, God, I'm gonna lift you up because you lifted me up. He's exalting God because of God's rescue from down to up and look at the repetition look at David recounting over and over the rescue of God just take a look take a look down at your Bibles verses 1 to 3 verse 1 says you've drawn me up verse 1 again you've not let my foes rejoice over me verse 2 you've healed me Verse three, you brought up my soul from Sheol. Verse three, you restored me to life from those who go down to the pit. Over and over and over. Do you see uh, David's emphasis? He says, God, I am extolling you. I'm exalting you. I'm lifting you up because you've done this and you've done that. I've extolled you because I've been rescued. Over and over and over. And note his rescue, the rescue that he sings about is so vividly painted See, there's this common image of David going from down to up, from the pits, from the depths going up. First, you get this image of a well. Uh, Look at verse one. See the phrase, you see the phrase there, it says, you've drawn me up. Uh, It employs a Hebrew word used for drawing a bucket out of a deep well. Drawn from the depths, it evokes the image drawing on a bucket from a well. Look at verse three. He says, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. that's a weird word. Um, Once again, first, the image of being brought up and Sheol in the Bible is a synonym for death, death. The NIV translates Sheol as the realm of the dead. Uh, Other translations translate Sheol simply as the grave, the grave. God has brought David from the grave. See, David is on the very brink of death. He has one foot in the grave. His enemies are already building his coffin for him and God brought him up. In the Bible, the grave is always accompanied by the strongest of images, death and decay, darkness from the furthest recesses of light, gloom, the opposite of joy and satisfaction. And it's from this dark and gloomy grave that God brings David up. So he, God draws him up like drawing a bucket from a well. God delivers him, brings him up from the grave And look at verse three again, you have this image of the pit. He says, you've restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. The pit was another metaphor for death in the grave. Uh, Dead bodies were often thrown into deep pits. Uh, And and look at the picture Jeremiah paints of the pit in Lamentations three. Very vivid. He says, they smothered my life in a pit and threw stones on me. Water flooded over my head and I thought, I'm going to die. That's what the pit was. It was a smothering, silent grave, drowning grave. And it's from these awful depths, the well, the grave, the pit, that God has rescued upwards. And so David extols his God. In verse 2, he says, oh, Lord, my God. It's his personal God, his very own God, who responded to his cry for help. And God, because God physically healed him from the sickness that brought him to the brink of death. Oh, Lord, my God, I exalt you. As you're reading verses one to three, when I was reading it at least, it can feel like you're a a fly on the wall in David's very personal prayer closet. It's just him and God. You feel like you're eavesdropping a little bit. He's so real with God. But in verse four, the tone kind of changes because he steps out of the prayer closet. He steps out of the prayer closet to the, the, the courtyard to exhort the saints. He goes from talking to God in the prayer closet to going to talk to the saints. And he says, congregation, would you sing praise to God? Look at verse four. He says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. His personal thanksgiving in his prayer closet erupts into corporate exhortation. Saints, sing. If this is the God who's rescued, shouldn't he be praised? Sing praises. Don't be silent. Open your mouths and sing. And perhaps this right now is a moment to stop. It's a moment to stop and hear David's exhortation in the pages of God's word. Oh, you, his saints of Hope Church, Toronto West, would you sing praises to the Lord? Sing, that's a command. It's an exhortation. Verse four, sing, do you hear it? Sing, God's word, sing. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, so helpful here in exhorting our sleepy hearts here. This is what he says. This is the type of quote that you take a picture of. (laughs) He said, David had a reason to give for the praise that was in his heart. He had been drawn up like a prisoner from a dungeon, like Joseph out of the pit, and therefore he loved his deliverer. Watch this. Grace has uplifted us from the pit of hell, from the ditch of sin, from the sloth of despond, from the bed of sickness, from the bondage of doubts and fears. Have we no song to offer for all this? How high has our Lord lifted us up? Lifted us in, into the child's place to be adopted into the family. Lifted us up into the union with Christ to sit together with him in the heavenly places. Lift high the name of our God, for he has lifted us up above the stars. And I think it's fitting right now to just stop and follow David's exhortation. Can we just lift God's name in prayer right now? Let's pray. God, we lift up your name right now because you're the God of our salvation. You're the God of our rescue from down to up. You drew us up from the well, the grave, and the pit, and so much deeper things. Lord, Aspergian says, you drew us from the pit of hell, the ditch of sin, from the bed of sickness, the bondage of doubts and fears. Have we no song to offer you for all this? Lord, would you forgive us when we are songless? Forgive us when we forget your rescue from down to up. Forgive us for forgetting to lift you up because you've lifted us above the stars. Lord, you are our salvation. God, I pray, put on our lips, glory to God, the Father. Glory be to God, the Son. Glory be to God, the Spirit, because you are our salvation. In your most precious name we pray, amen. Now, if Psalm 30 stopped at these verses, it would be a pretty powerful psalm in its own right. But the psalm continues, because not only do we see God's rescue from down to up, we see God's wake-up call. God's wake-up call from God forgetfulness to God mindfulness. From God's forgetfulness to God mindfulness, that's our second point. Um, Here's a little confession. When I read verses one to five this week, I was amazed by the candor, the rawness, the beauty and the visceral power of David's personal prayer. But if I can be honest, I also felt like I was kind of walking in on David in his prayer closet. Like I was walking in uh, into the middle of his story and in the middle of his journey. Because look at verse one to five. He is having this powerful, cathartic experience of God's deliverance. And you read verses one to five and you think, Well, I must have missed something here. He's just like extolling and worshiping. And what did I miss here? Um, Can I ask you a silly poll question? You can just, just by nodding of heads. um, Who was watching that Raptors game a few years ago when Kawhi Leonard hit that buzzer beater in game seven against the 76ers? Can I see nods of heads? Most of us. Okay, good. Awesome. You know, the shot that hit the rim four times and went in. Um, Here's a confession. Uh, I was taking a nap while that was happening. And I remember waking up and, and checking my phone, checking my phone, and you're literally seeing people extolling the rafters. This is the greatest thing ever. This is the greatest moment. Whoever missed that, man, I can't believe you missed that. I feel bad for the person who was, who was asleep through that moment. And as the person who was asleep through that moment. I remember thinking, I must have really missed something here. What happened? And verse one to five can feel like that. You read verse 1 to 5, and you think, I feel like I'm missing a big part of David's story here. I just read this, I just read about his resultant jubilation. I feel like I missed something that God did. And the amazing thing about this psalm is that verses 6 to 10, this next little chunk, it gives us the backstory. It plays the highlights of what happened. See, David shares a bit about his story, the story of how he got sick and how God healed and delivered, and ultimately how God gave him a wake-up call, moving him from forgetting God to remembering God. And here's how he recounts the story. Look at verses six to eight with me. Psalm 30, verse six. It says, as for me, I said in my poverty, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong you hid your face. I was dismayed to you. O Lord. I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. This text gives us a flashback. It's a flashback of David's life before he gets sick, before he's close to the grave. And it's a time actually where he feels really confident and he feels really secure. And he felt so secure that he said, I shall not be shaken. I love other translations of this text. Uh, NIV verse six says, when I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. NLT says, when I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. His attitude was, everything is great. Everything's coming up. Roses, their circumstances look good. So I'm set now. I am all good. I shall never be moved. And I don't know about you, but can you identify with this? In the good times, in the times where things are great, it's so easy to say, things are great, I'm all set. But here's the danger of of those good times. In those times when you're saying, I am set, you're saying it not because you're mindful of God, but because you're completely forgetful of God. And this indeed was David's story. See, he, David, even in these verses, describes his life as the mountain that stood strong. See, in the Bible, mountains were always the symbol for stability, for security, and strength. And indeed, in this time, God made David's mountain stand strong. Uh, Alec Mateer explains uh, on the screen. He said, at the, time of own, at the time of David's own house, his sense of security would have been enormous. Zion was captured and fortified. Power was increasing, his army strong, his family increasing. Possibly also the Philistines were defeated while the house was still in building. It was in this pride-inducing period, the Lord in grace humbled David by a sickness which dashed the cup from his hand before he had time to drink it. David was proud. His sense of security was enormous. His stocks were doing great. He wasn't in debt, his job was going awesome. "I'm set," is what he thinks. He'd grown self-confident and over self-confident and overconfident. So in this little verse, in a moment, God, in his righteous anger, flips his life around. What happens? God hides his face. Do you see that in verse seven? "The hiding of God's face. The hiding of God's face, he says. When you hid your face, I was dismayed. Um, Other translations uh, give this contrast a little bit clearer in in verse seven. The CSB says, Lord, when you showed your favor, you made me stand like a strong mountain. But when you hid your face, I was terrified. See, David tells this story. Uh, When I had God's favor, I was the strong mountain. But when God hid his face, it all fell apart. In the Bible, the hiding of God's face is always an idiom. It's an idiom for God turning away his favor. It's a withdrawal of divine presence. It's the act of holy anger on sin. Like the sun going down in the desert, the hiding of God's face leaves a cold, frigid, lonely, dark, literally God-forsaken wasteland. And the inevitable result is this. He is dismayed. Other translations say he is terrified. Other translations say he's shattered. He's dismayed. He's terrified. He's shattered. Mateer again says, divine favor had brought David prosperity, but it only needed the shadow of a cloud. I love that. The shadow of a cloud to cover the Lord's face. And David was dismayed. My God, when you hid your face, I was dismayed, terrified, shattered. See all that overconfidence all that self-security, all that foolish boasting that David had, I shall never be moved, he boasts, all in a single moment, all dashed. All dashed in a single moment of God's anger and the result is a broken David. I don't know about you, but I can really identify. Heck, over the last two years, if I had gone to a time machine, went back two or three years and to, to our best times, and said, hey, how are things going? Things are well. We'd probably respond with, yeah, things are, are going great. I don't know what could turn this whole thing around. I don't know what, what, what could cause us all to crumble around us. But suddenly, qu- something quickly came and it crumbled. And sometimes it's like, like in David's case, it's God hiding his face. But here's the amazing thing. While God may hide his face in a moment of anger, this is also an occasion for his holy grace. You know why? Because it's an occasion for him to wake us up. You see, if God wanted to turn the dial to 100% wrath, David would not be alive, he'd be dead. But God didn't do that, which means that he's showing grace. You see, God, even in his momentary anger in this little text, he's restoring David with a wake-up call because he's saying, David, wake up, move from God-forgetfulness to God-mindfulness. You forgot me right now, and that's why you think you're dwelling secure. That's why you think nothing can stop me now. That's why you think I'll never be moved. But I need to remind you of the most important thing to seek my face. See, first, God wakes David up to the peril of prosperity. Do you see that little word prosperity in verse six? See, David realizes it was times of prosperity that I got complacent and forgot God. It was in the times where cars were cheap and houses were cheap and I can afford everything. That's when I got complacent and forgot God. But did you, did you know that prosperity can be dangerous? Did you know that Sometimes prosperity is even a thing we should pray against. Proverbs 30, wise, wise uh, words. It says this in Proverbs 30. This is his prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Look at his prayer. Don't give me poverty, Lord, but don't give me riches. And here's why. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? That's the danger of poverty. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Uh, Do you see that prayer? Give me neither poverty nor riches. Poverty, they can both be dangerous. In poverty, you may end up cursing God, but in prosperity, you may end up denying God and saying, who is the Lord? The great peril of prosperity is the forgetfulness of God. But God wakes David up to be mindful of God again. What grace, what grace when he does that to us too. Second, God wakes up David's perspective on life. Look at verse 7 again. In verse 7, you see a sober-minded David. He's when he says, Your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. He's acknowledging this point that he forgot, and that he once acknowledged. And here's, here, here's the truth. It was God all along. It was all God this entire time. The security and strength that he did have It was only ever authored and sustained by the Lord. It was all God's favor all along. It was God's favor that brought him strength. It was God's favor that sustained it. It was God's favor all along. And you see this, it's not just God's holy momentary anger on David. It's God's grace. He's saying, David, wake up because there's perils to prosperity. He's saying, David, wake up. It's been me all along. It's God all along. And God is restoring him. He's waking him up. And finally, God leads him to a place of blessed lowliness, blessed desperation. Verse eight, he says, to you, O Lord, I cry. To you, O Lord, I plead for mercy. Those words, cry and plead, they're actually in the continuous sense. In other words, he's saying, oh, Lord, I keep on crying. I keep on pleading. I'm coming back to your house every single day. And what is he coming for? He's coming for mercy, grace. Do you want know Is it's, it's the unmerited favor of the Lord. Favor. The CSB itself translates verse A: Lord, I called to you. I saw favor from my Lord. And what he's saying is I need it back, Lord. That's all I ever needed. To us in a room who probably didn't start wake up this morning and say, "God, what I need most is your favor." David's back there. He's saying, "God, your favor, that's all I ever needed. It's all I've ever needed before. It's the only good I ever had. It's the only true treasure I truly need. It's always been my sustainer in the background. It's always been your favor all along. So Lord, show me your face. Show me your favor. The man who forgot God is now desperate for God. And that is blessed grace. And now he moves from God forgetfulness to God mindfulness. And it shapes his plea in verses nine and 10. Look at verse nine and 10. He says, what profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, be my helper. It's stunning. You see David on his deathbed, And, and he went from a place where he ignored or forgot God from saying, I shall never be moved to, look, right now, his entire appeal is this. What about you, God? He's basically saying, if I die, what will happen to your praise? If I go to the dust, will the dust praise you? Some, some people look at that and say oh, he's just kind of bargaining to save his life but I don't think that's what's happening because one thing here one thing you can say about his entire appeal is that he's so consumed with what will happen to your praise God see his prayers are not well, what about me his prayers are but God what about you what about your praise what about telling of your faithfulness will the dust do that will the dust praise you He's not praying, how can I profit from being saved? He's saying, how can you profit God from being saved? Derek Kidner, love him. He's a commentator. He summarizes David's blunt prayer. He basically says, you will gain nothing and you'll lose a worshiper God. And while his logic is maybe a little overly simplistic, one thing we can say is this, he's starting with God's interests, not his own. In this whole section, he started with, when I was prosperous, I said, I shall never be shaken. Not thinking about God at all, but in this moment, he's like, I have one concern. It's your interest, Lord, not mine. And that's the wake-up call he needed from God forgetfulness to God mindfulness. Have you ever experienced this in your life? Just a little, let's stop and look at your lives. Can you look back to a period where you felt self-confident and self-assured? I shall never be moved. But then God humbled you. Does that, does that ring a bell? And it was painful. Maybe it still hurts today. It, but look, if he's using it to bring back God mindfulness in your life, it's a sheer act of kind mercy in your life. Spurgeon put it this way he said, throughout this psalm, there are indications that David had been greatly afflicted, both personally and relatively, after having, in his presumption, fancied himself secure. Totally resonate. Then he says this. When God's children prosper one way, they are generally tried another. For few of us can bear unmingled prosperity. Hear this truth. Few of us can bear unmingled prosperity. Even the joys of hope need to be mixed with the pains of experience. And the more surely so when comfort breeds carnal security and self-confidence. Nevertheless, Pardon soon followed repentance and God's mercy was glorified. Few of us can bear unmingled prosperity. So God mixes in a little bit of pain to draw us back to him, that we would be mindful of him again. Maybe in your life, he has mixed in the pain of bankruptcy, of death, of lost health of lost relationships, of dashed hopes and dreams. And if this is your story, strive to return to your God. Strive to hear and be thankful for God's wake-up call. Don't be resentful of it. Open your eyes and be mindful of your God again. Because what profits your soul if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? What profits if you have prosperity, but you don't have God? But God brought David to that point takes away the prosperity, but brings him before God. This was, God's, this was David's story, a story of God hiding his face, an act of both, moment, uh, of both momentary anger and boundless mercy all at once to wake him up from God forgetfulness to God mindfulness. And so far we've seen God's rescue. We see his wake up call and it's against this entire backdrop, His test, the testimony of his life that we see the central truth of this entire passage. The one thing this whole Psalm hangs upon, we see God's holy name from anger to favor. And that's our third point. God's holy name from anger to favor. Just want to give you some background. Verse 1 to 10, what we've read, shows us David's whole story. The wake-up call, God's rescue, and sandwiched in the middle is actually the crux of this entire psalm. The whole passage actually hinges on the truth that we find in verse 4 and 5. We're going back to verse 4 and 5 because it hangs—it it, it, it holds the whole psalm. Let's read it again. Verse 4 and 5 says this. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name For His anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning verse five in particular is the gold nugget of this psalm that david's life is squeezed in this nutcracker of david's wake-up call and the gears turn and a beautiful little kernel a little nut comes out the kernel of truth of god's very nature and it's this his anger is but for a moment but his favor is for a lifetime There's something amazing about this little truth. Alec Matir again so astutely observes, it's on the screen. He says, David summons the saints to praise not for what he had experienced, for, but for what had been revealed of the Lord. That within the holy nature of God, right? Holy name, anger, right? There is that which quickly moves to enduring favor. I just want to, I'm going to go slower at this point. Can we leave that quote up? You see what he's saying? He's saying, at this moment, David isn't just praising because God rescued him. David's praising because something profound about God has been revealed to him. Something about his very nature, his holy nature, something that makes God so unique, that makes God set apart. That's what holiness means. He's set apart from the so-called gods of this world. And, that, and, that, and here's what it is. He is the God whose momentary anger moves quickly to lifetime favor. His anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. When I was re- meditating on this psalm, I, I thought to myself, if this psalm was gone from, from God's word, we would never have this verse and we would never have in a single little verse this great kernel of truth that David's learned through his experience about who his God is. The part of the very holy, think about it this way. This is what's stunning. The blend of anger and favor in God is a part of his holiness. It's completely unique to God's nature. Our God, his calling card, what sets him apart from anything else is that he is a God of momentary anger and lifetime favor. If you ever think, oh, is my God the God of momentary favor and lifetime anger? The answer is no. He is not that God. He is not the God of momentary favor and lifetime anger. You must be thinking of a different God, but this is, no, thats our, this is our holy God and this eternal truth stands forever. His anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Would you step back and just be amazed at that? It means that your God is not the fire-breathing dragon God first and foremost. It means it's not fire from nostrils. Yes, he is holy. He is righteous in all of his judgments. He will by no means clear the guilty, it says in Exodus 33. But note this, his anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Amen. That mix That blend is part of the very holiness of God. That's why David prays, I I praise you for your holy name, for your anger lasts, but for a moment, but your favor is for a lifetime. But here's a problem and leaves us with a problem. As beautiful as this God is, momentary anger, lifetime favor. On our own, we're wretched sinners. And this, this is what that means. It means that we deserve the full wrath of God to be poured out against us. And you may stop there and think, but that's, it's okay. His anger's from, for a moment. Here's the problem. Even if God's wrath only burned against us for a momentary millisecond, it would be like a hot oven with a heat that is so great we wouldn't survive. If you just got the momentary anger of all of God's wrath poured upon us, we would be toast. We wouldn't survive. We've stored too much wrath because of our hard and impenitent hearts, Romans two, verse five. We would never survive even a nanosecond of God's momentary anger. Never survive that to even get to the point where we're experiencing his lifetime favor. So what do you do? What hope is there? Are we forever cast away from the lifetime favor of God? If we couldn't even survive one millisecond of his momentary anger, Does that mean we can never savor his lifetime favor? Here's the answer. There was a moment where all the anger of God against all of sinful humanity was poured out in a single moment, but it wasn't poured out on us. It was poured out on him. (laughs) Because in one single moment on the cross, God poured out all his holy wrath and anger upon Jesus Christ so that for the rest of our lifetime, we only get his favor. His anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. In a single moment on the cross, the whole cup of God's wrath was against human sin was drunk by Jesus so that for a lifetime, we may net we never have to taste a single drop of that wrath. Instead, only tasting for a lifetime, the favor of God. His anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime pretty amazing truth in a single moment god cried out my god my god why have you forsaken me so that for a lifetime you will never ever experience the forsakenness of god so the presence of god dwells within you for a lifetime you're sealed by the holy spirit you're not left as orphans he dwells within you his anger is for a moment but his favor is for a lifetime amen How can we possibly bear the momentary yet unsurvivable wrath of God? The answer is we can't, but we didn't have to bear it because Jesus bore it for us. This momentary anger of God was poured out on Jesus so we get God's lifetime favor. Can I give you a Bible word today? It's on the screen or anything. And if you want to get the spelling, if you can't get the spelling, come come to me afterwards. The Bible word is propitiation. God became a propitiation for us. You know, this is what propitiation means. Wayne Grudem defines it so well. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath towards us into favor. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Do you know how we get lifetime favor? Because in a moment, Jesus on the cross was our propitiation. It means he bore the full wrath of God that we deserve, and in so doing, changed the wrath of God into his favor. His anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. And that means the apostle John, he can look up and he can praise. He looks at the cross and proclaims. First John four, verse 10 says, in this is love, Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints. Give thanks to his holy name. That's our, that's, that's this text. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Because Jesus is your propitiation by faith in him, by faith in his uh, finished work, our weeping becomes joy. Our weeping is momentary. It says in this text, weeping may tarry. That word tarry, it gives the picture of an unwelcome guest. <laughs> I love that. An unwo- weeping may tarry for the night. Weeping may be an unwelcome guest that comes to the night and you're like, well, I don't really want him to stay here. But in the next morning, you're on your way. Get out of here. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning all because of Jesus, because he gives us a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. First Peter 1. And all this leads us to the final two verses of our text. The final thing we see in this psalm is this, God's praise from silence to singing. God's praise from silence to singing. Let's read verses 11 and 12 together. It says this, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent." O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Because of of God's rescue, because of his wake-up call, because of his holy name, now we join with David to sing praise with joy. See, the psalm ends with exuberant praise in the God who turned anger to favor, weeping to joy. And now he adds on the language, mourning into dancing. He replaces sackcloth with a clothing of gladness. It was a garment of mourning to a clothing of gladness. And this is our story as well. And when that's our story, the only fitting response is praise. Here's what I want us to get from this last little verse. Look at verse 12. Do you notice that in this verse, it says, you've done all of these things. And what's the first word in verse 12? That god has closed in glory that that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent see david is so aware of god's rescue and joy uh, uh, that god's rescue that god's giving of joy turning of mourning into dancing that it has a divine purpose and the divine purpose is this that our souls would sing and not be silent our glory gives glory to god we'd move from silence to singing And isn't this why we move and live and have our being to sing praises to God and tell of his faithfulness? Because here's the truth, the dust isn't going to do that. But we're, they wasn't created for that, but we were. We say, Lord, you lifted me up and dusted me off so I can do what the dust could never do. And that's to praise you. Just wait for a moment here. Even listen to the silence. Silence. Intrinsically, God's people were not designed to be gathered together and be silent. He's delivered us, so we sing praises. Hope Church, has your experience of, God's, of gospel salvation caused you to sing praises? Because it was designed with this purpose in mind. Jesus lowered himself so that every tongue would confess and every knee would bow and, and say that Jesus Christ is Lord. So church, sing Church, sing like you mean it. May we never have a volume problem at this church. May we never have a silence problem in this church. I love what David's praying. God, you healed me, you rescued, you turned my morning into dancing, not so that I can sit there and be silent, but so that I can sing praise and not be silent. May we have that pledge. I will not be silent. That's David. God saved us to break our silence, to open our lips, to sing to God forever so that we can cry out like King David does in this final little verse. Oh Lord, my God, we will give thanks to you forever. Saved to sing, amen? Saved to say, I will not be silent, I'm gonna sing. I don't know, I don't know about you, but the last two years I've been missing singing. (laughs) But this is what David's telling telling the congregation. Do you know what you're saved for? You're saved that you would sing. Save that you would not be silent. Hope Church Toronto West, may we sing and not be silent. May we give glory and give thanks to God forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now and help us, would you make us a people who sing, who behold you and sing. Just have it ringing in my head. The Lord is my salvation. Glory be to God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. The Lord is my salvation. Who is like the Lord our God? Strong to save. Faithful in love. My debt is paid and the victory won. The Lord is my salvation. Lord, would you put a new song in our lips? Lord, we were saved so that we could sing. We were... (laughs) You took away the false confidence that we have in the, prosper- in the times of prosperity. Strip us bare so that we can come back to you and experience your full rescue and learn something that is magnificent about who you are. That you're the God of momentary anger and lifetime favor. And because of that, we sing. Because weeping tarries for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You turn our mourning into dancing. You give us clothing of gladness. Lord, would you take, would you clothe us with gladness? Would we sing to you because you saved? Lord, would you forgive us for our silence? Would you open our mouths? Lord, we need it so desperately now. We need it so desperately to sing greatly of our great God, the God who's whole, who has a holy name, the God whose anger is but for a moment, whose favor is for a lifetime. Lord, I pray, I thank you bought for us the favor of the Lord. And may we bask in it from day to day. In your most precious name we pray. Amen. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.